enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. committed to making an episode on comets, and today I fulfill that promise. I said I'd do this during the episode on astrogeology that I put out in March, because I spent so much of that episode talking about Jean and Carolyn Shoemaker of the Shoemaker-Levy 9 comet. If you'll recall, Eugene Shoemaker uh, and his wife Carolyn and their colleague David H. Levy identified a fragmented comet that was orbiting Jupiter. I'll talk about that comet in a few minutes, but first I'd like to address what comets actually are. There are two perspectives you can have on comets. For observers who are looking out at the night sky from Earth, comets are blurry, bright smudges that appear and remain for a set amount of time before slowly fading or winking out. They can be observed with the naked eye or with the telescopes, and they have spectra you can observe as well. Up close, comets come in a range of sizes, shapes, intensities, and predictabilities. The website Cool Cosmos describes them as, quote, dirty snowballs made mainly of ice and frozen carbon dioxide with some dust and organic molecules left over from the formation of the solar system, end quote. They have a solid, irregularly shaped nucleus of this snowball material, which starts to evaporate as the comet gets close to the sun. This nucleus can be hundreds of feet across or miles across, depending on the comet. Generally, The brighter a comet appears, the larger its nucleus is. As the nucleus evaporates, these particles start to trail off and create a coma, or a cloud of dust and gas. This coma creates the tail of a comet, which curves along its orbital path. This tail can be identified with infrared telescopes, and if it's bright enough, it can be seen with the naked eye. Sometimes, a comet is bright enough that it shows up even in the daytime, but this isn't very common. There are also comets that have multiple tails. One is the coma that shows the orbital path, while the other is an ionized cloud that will always point away from the sun, blown by the solar wind. There can even be fans of these tails, depending on how much dust is blown off the comet, and all these tails can stretch for millions of miles. The general value of comets to astronomers comes from their origins. They pass near the sun so rarely and form on the edges of our solar system so they can tell us what conditions were like when the sun and planets were first forming over four billion years ago. Comets may have formed in the Kuiper belt, which I've talked about before, or they may have formed in the Oort cloud, which is a huge shell of icy bodies that surrounds the solar system, the leftover dust and gases from the formation of the sun. Comets from the Oort cloud tend to be long-period comets, which refers to how often they appear in our skies. They come near our sun for brief times every few thousand years, following egg-shaped elliptical orbits that often send them beyond Pluto before they return to the sun. Another comet type is hyperbolic comets, which will only ever enter our solar system once. The sun's gravity sucks them in, they swing around, and then they're chucked back out into the depths of space. Then there are comets that orbit the sun more closely and show up regularly. These are short-period comets. 
They are the comets from the Kuiper Belt out beyond Pluto's orbit. Halley's Comet is an example of a periodic comet, with a period of 75.32 years. Some of these comets have been numbered by the Minor Planet Center. Halley's Comet is designated 1P Halley. Comet Enki, which has a period of 3.3 years, is designated 2P Enki, and so on, with these fancy named and numbered short-period comets. Some comets don't survive their past near the sun, so these repeating comets are pretty special. Another class of comet are sun-grazing comets, which are even more special because they come so close to the sun at their nearest approach. The point where a comet is at its closest to the sun is called perihelion. Just a fun fact there. Sun-grazing comets need to come within about 850,000 miles from the sun at their perihelion, though many of these kind of comets come even closer to within a few thousand miles at perihelion. The sun gives off a lot of solar radiation, which is what evaporates their materials. This solar radiation, combined with solar wind, also acts on comets, pushing their tails away from the sun. The closer comets get to the sun, the stronger the tidal forces and gravitational stress become. Sun grazers don't often survive their trip around the sun, even if they don't crash into the surface of the sun. There is a very specific orbit that 85% of sun grazers follow. This is like a highway for these comets, and it's called the Kreutz Path, named for German astronomer Heinrich Kreutz. Kreutz studied sun-grazing comets and determined that a lot of these comets were related. They had been part of a larger comet that splintered up hundreds or even thousands of years ago, so the current comets that follow the Kreutz Path are the leftovers. For example, Comet Ikea Seiki was a Kreutz sun-grazer that astronomers observed extensively in 1965. There are a few other groups that some sun grazers fit into, the Meyer group, Cracked group, and Marsden group, and all of these groups were probably also a bigger comet that shattered at one point. Comets have been observed throughout history, and records of them date back to the very ancient Greeks. These comets were all observable with the naked eye, and often bright enough to be visible during the day. This earned them the designation Great Comets. Great Comets of the past two millennia include the following. <laughs> An unnamed comet noted by Ephorus of Syme that he noted in the winter of either 373 or 372 BCE. I believe this is the earliest record confirmed for a comet. Halley's Comet was first recorded in 87 BCE, and then again in 12 BCE, uh, 1066 CE, and finally 1910, when Edmund Halley was the one to address it and create the designation Periodic Comet to describe comets that return at predictable intervals. Caesar's Comet was visible for seven days in 44 BCE and was thought to correspond to the death of Julius Caesar, which had happened earlier that year. Modern astronomers designated this comet as C-43K1. As a Class C comet, it is non-periodic, which means it hasn't shown up again. This could mean it's a hyperbolic comet, or maybe it has a period longer than two millennia. We just don't know. The Great Comet of 1106 spawned many other comets, because it was observed to split into pieces. Its presence and qualities were recorded by astronomers in Wales, England, Japan, Korea, China, and Europe, and its pieces formed the Great Comets of 1843 and 1882, Comet Preira, Comet Ikea Seiki, and Comet Lovejoy, also known as C2011W3. It also resulted in over 3,000 small comets that are close to the Sun, as the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, or SOHO Telescope, has observed. Some of these pieces of comet follow the Kreutz path. I'll let you know when great comets were Kreutz sun grazers, too. 
The Great Comet of 1264 was observed and recorded in Europe and China. It was one of the brightest comets on record, appearing in July of 1264 and remaining visible up until the end of September. It was described as a hairy star and became visible during the mornings, with the tail leading long before the comet itself rose above the horizon. There were also great comets in 1402 and 1556, which are cool but not super noteworthy. We then have the Great Comet of 1577, which was viewed by people all over Europe, including Turkish astronomer Taki Aldin and my beautiful, beautiful one true astronomer love, Tycho Brahe. From his observations of the comet, Brahe realized that the stars were not part of a fixed sphere and that objects in space could travel above the Earth's atmosphere. Then there's the Great Comet of 1618 and the Great Comet of 1680, which was also... Uh, called Kirsch's Comet, after, after its discoverer, Gottfried Kirsch. Kirsch's Comet was also called Newton's Comet because of Isaac Newton. He used it to test and verify Kepler's laws of motion. Wikipedia recommended giving props to Eusebio Kino as well, who was a Spanish Jesuit priest who charted the course that the comet took. Kirsch's Comet was one of the brightest comets of the 17th century, a sun-grazing comet, and the first comet discovered using a telescope. Previous comets had been identified by naked eye observations. That's 10 comets so far, and that's between 373 BCE and 1680 CE, 2,053 years of human history. Things really start popping off during the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries, though. The telescope helped identify more comets, as did the sheer number of amateur astronomers who now had access to telescopes. To just quickly skim... There were great comets in 1744, 1811, and 1819, a great comet in 1843 that was a piece of the Great Comet of 1106 and a part of the Crutes group of sun-grazing comets, uh, Donati's Comet in 1858, which was named after the Italian astronomer who found it, Battista Donati, and was the first comet to be photographed by two different people, W. Usherwood and G.P. Bond, a great comet in 1861, Cogia's Comet in 1874, named for the French astronomer who found it, Jérôme-Eugène Cogia. The Great Comet of 1882, a.k.a. a piece of the Great Comet of 1106 and one of the Crute Sun Grazers. A Great Comet in 1901, the Great Daylight Comet of 1910, Halley's Comet coming back around in 1910 and then again in 1986, and it'll be here again in 2061 when I'm... Oh my god, I'll be 69. <laughs> wow, that'll be a good year. We're so close to the end of the list. There's Comet Scylerop Meristinae in 1927, named for the two independent discoverers, amateur astronomer Frank Scylerop in Australia, and Edmondo Meristinae in Argentina. Comet Arend Roland in 1957, named for discoverers Sylvain Arend and Georges Roland, both of Belgium. Comet Seiki Lines in 1962 and Comet Ikea Seiki in 1965, both of which were discovered by the Japanese astronomer Tsutomo Seiki, hence why his name is in both of them. I couldn't find who Lines was, but Ikea Seiki was discovered independently by Seiki and another Japanese astronomer, Kaoru Ikea. Okay, home stretch. Comet West in 1976, discovered by Danish astronomer Richard Martin West. The Great Comet of 1996, which was one of the closest cometary approaches of the previous 200 years, and is also referred to as Comet Hayakutake, after the Japanese astronomer Yuji Hayakutake, who discovered it with binoculars. 
comet Hale-Bopp, which was discovered in 1997 by two Americans, the professional astronomer Alan Hale and, independently, the amateur astronomer Thomas Bopp. Comet McNaught in 2007, discovered by Scottish-Australian astronomer Robert McNaught. And finally, Comet Lovejoy in 2011, which was named for Terry Lovejoy, an Australian amateur astronomer, and was a Crutes sungrazer. <laughs> Phew, it's quite a list of great comets that have been discovered. 28 total, I believe. It isn't a comprehensive list of all comets. That would be an excessively long list, as there have been over 3,500 identified. But these are bold examples of the sheer quantity of things that our sun has dragged in and throws away. There have been some pretty cool insights that we achieved by exploring comets, too. said at the beginning of this episode, comets are big snowballs when you get down to it. This means you can land on them. They're hurtling through space at massive speeds, so this isn't an easy task, but it is possible to land on a comet. There are also issues that arise with the dust around a comet. It obscures everything, both because it's dust, and because the material components of the dust can mess with sensors. There have been several missions to get closer to comets first. In 1984, the Soviet Union launched two identical spacecraft, Vega 1 and 2, in a combined mission to swing past Venus and then fly past Comet Halley. The spacecraft dropped off Venus entry probes in 1985, and then they were retargeted with Venus's gravity to intercept Comet Halley in 1986. They didn't wind up getting that close. One got within 6,000 miles, and the other got within uh, 1,800 miles. There were issues with targeting the comet nucleus and shielding the spacecraft from the comet dust. Japan sent out two probes in 1985 to fly by Halley as well. It was a good time to take advantage of that well-known comet. (laughs) Uh, Suisei, the Japanese word for comet, was launched into orbit around the sun and succeeded in taking UV images of the sun's hydrogen corona for about 30 days before and after comet Halley passed close to the sun. Suisei had a CCD UV imaging system and a solar wind instrument. Its fellow heliocentric probe, Sakigake, which was translated by NASA as Pioneer, had instruments to measure plasma wave spectra, solar wind ions, and interplanetary magnetic fields. NASA sent out a probe in 1978 named the International Cometary Explorer. In addition to a bunch of other goals, this probe studied the interaction between the solar wind and the atmosphere of Comet Giacobani Zinner in 1985. It managed to investigate Halley the same year. NASA also sent out the probe Giotto to study Halley in 1985. Scientists wanted color photographs of the nucleus, and they wanted to collect information about the composition and the processes in the coma, the rate of gas production and ratio between dust to gas, and the interaction between the solar wind and the comet. Giotto also did a flyby of comet Grig Schillerup in 1992. In 1989, NASA sent out the Galileo probe to Jupiter and made some unexpected observations of the impact that Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 made on Jupiter's surface. The comet itself wasn't discovered until 1993, long after the probe had been sent, so it was cool that scientists could pivot and collect images during this phenomenon. 
Galileo was still en route to Jupiter at the time. It's a long journey that far out in our solar system, but the comet had been orbiting Jupiter for a while, pulled out of its orbit of the sun and torn into more than 20 chunks by the extreme tidal forces. When the fragments crashed into Jupiter in July of 1994, the impacts created huge plumes that were 1,200 to 1,900 miles high and heated the planet's atmosphere to temperatures as hot as 53,000 to 71,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The dark, ringed scars that the comet fragments left were eventually hidden by Jupiter's atmosphere. I feel like this is an episode of Quick Lists, but maybe I can address these missions later in a longer podcast. Just really quickly... NASA sent the probe Deep Space One on a mission to fly by Comet Borelli and asteroid Braille in 1998, probe Stardust to collect samples from Comet Wild 2 in 1999, and a failed mission to collect information about three comet nuclei in 2002 that ended because they lost contact with probe Contour, though it was supposed to visit comets Enki, Schwassmann Walkman 3, and Dearest. The European Space Union launched a mission in 2004, sending spacecraft Rosetta to drop a probe on comet Churyumov-Gurmasenko, which was a success. And then we have Deep Impact. There's a movie about it, too. But there was a planned flyby of comets Temple 1 and Hartley 2 that NASA launched in 2005. The mission objectives were to explore the physical characteristics of a comet's nucleus, determine the properties of the comet's surface, compare the interior and surface of the comet, and more deeply understand the way that cometary nuclei evolve. This was done by firing a probe into the Comet Temple 1 in 2005, which did vaporize the impactor, but also did give us some major insight into comet composition and structure. Deep Impact's mission was then extended to fly by Comet Hartley 2 in 2010. So we've slammed into comets. We have footage from comets. I'll include a link to the ESA's video from the Rosetta mission, as well as some great photographs and a GIF that was made by stacking several images that Rosetta took to show what looks like a snowy mountainscape until you realize the distant snow is actually wheeling stars. At this point, I feel like anything I could say about comets would just be a rehash of what I've said before. They're space snowballs that are orbiting the sun, but the time it takes them to orbit the sun can be thousands of years. When they get close, their gases and particles start to burn off, which renders them more visible to astronomers on Earth. There are tons and tons of comets out there, which is cool as hell, and we have started interacting with them and trying to learn more about their structure and origins. Fuck yeah, comets. (laughs) Any other comet episodes should probably just focus on really famous comets, if those need to be addressed at all. For the next podcast, I'm a bit lost. I'm not sure what I want to look into yet. Something in NASA's history, maybe? Feel free to suggest some ideas of topics for me to cover by sending me an ask on my Tumblr or tweeting at me on Twitter at HD in the Void, which is all one word. Go ahead and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes so you won't miss the new episodes. It would also be awesome if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review the podcast there as well. A monthly release seems to be working well for me, so you should be hearing from me again towards the end of June. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it rolls my snowball. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to generate some snowballs of your own. You can find my sources for this episode, music credits, a vocab list, a timeline of all the people who discovered comets, and the episode transcript at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD, signing off.